everybody welcome back to three right turns the only podcast that was kind of sort of wishing they had that last podcast back for a few days after the release when man things were looking kind of sketchy but then i i guess things have turned out all right after all i mean look i was really nervous after i released the last three right turns because there is a few days there where i was getting just sick thinking oh right this was that whole coup thing I was talking so much about. You know, it might not matter who actually won the election. If you can rig the courts and get the Republican machine behind you and just keep on denying reality and, I don't know, see what the moderates have to say about it. That my kind of Pollyanna-ish, oh, shucks, he tried to coup and no one took it serious and democracy still works take from, was it, Three Right Turns 29? was going to age like the milk in Ron Burgundy's depression beard. It was going to sour very quickly. But then, you know, uh, just the last few days, even though it doesn't seem we're ever going to get a concession out of Trump, I think that's still going to be true. His administration is, at the time of recording this, beginning to release the funds necessary for transition, uh, authorizing the president-elect Joe Biden to have daily presidential briefings and in other ways going about the kind of boring business of transferring power in a peaceful and orderly way, which, hey, that's good. It's good because (laughs) we get to beat Trump twice. I think we might have beat him four times in Pennsylvania. And I don't know about you, but our little three-person Thanksgiving that we're trying to pull off here in our home with my wife and my kid this weekend, it's going to be that much sweeter with just a booster shot of victorious dopamine rushing through our system. So that's nice. But, you know, it's also good that because while, yes, they're still shaky, wobbly, it seems our institutions held. The courts, when presented with no evidence, threw Trump's legal challenges out. The local election boards mostly certified the election results of that incident. Republican state legislators refused to consider sending alternate slates of electors or other constitutionally and legally dubious methods of trying to, I don't know, again, deny reality. Tucker Carlson, of all people, was the first kind of to turn on him. He had this uh, big statement where he opened one show saying that while he loved to hear a story of Joe Biden stealing the election uh, and would do what he could to stop the steal, there's just no evidence of that actually having occurred. And none of them had to do this. They could have taken us right to the brink this time. It could have been time to see, you know, what the hell, what's going to get America out in the streets. But they didn't. They didn't take us to the brink. It does make you wonder what would happen if this was another 2000 type election, you know, where this time it's the Democrats who would be winning perhaps by 500 votes in a Democratic state. I mean, I to be honest, I don't wonder that at all. It's is there is there a person listening to this here podcast that could with a straight face say that Republicans would just accept a 2000 like result? let alone what Al Gore did that year where he was as vice president, essentially gaveling down uh, faithless electors and telling people to respect the process. There's no way you would get Trump to do something like that. 
but you know, it's, 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 it's good. It's good that the system kind of held, but it's also really bad because now we have something like two thirds of the Republican voters who think that this election stolen and illegitimate. And we're going to hear a lot about that over the next four years. Republican confidence in elections is in the mid 30 percent. And that's really bad for the long term health of our country. For a long time now, Republicans have acted as if democratic control of power and government was illegitimate on the face of it. How long is it going to be before they start acting on how they've acted? But I have to say, I and still kind of long-term optimistic because I do feel like this cult Trump of personality, this, this Trumpism thing does behave like a lot of traditional cults that I've studied. And the thing is in cults, it's all about managing expectations. You make big predictions with testable results over a short period of time. It's very risky. The end is near. Holy hell. You can recruit with that slogan. Does as does pretty good long term sustainable growth in that slogan. The end is next Tuesday. Mm, I mean, look, you can really, really recruit with that slogan. There's some urgency to it, right? But you're left with the problem come Tuesday if the world's still here, especially if you convinced your faithful to give away their earthly possessions, you know. Now, you might be able to hold on to them if you say, oh, wait, wait, you know, I forgot to carry the one. Uh, or keep track of uh, the fact that there's no zero century. And it, and it turns out the prophecy was about this Thursday, not Tuesday, or, or is next Tuesday, or Tuesday a month from now. You can, you can keep that going for a little, long, or a little bit longer. But what happens when those dates, too, pass without incident? You, just, you start losing followers. And for years, the really crazy fringes of Trumpism, which have become more and more core Trumpism, were claiming that Trump's been compiling a list of arrest warrants and investigating this deep state and that at a date soon at hand, these are all going to be made public and all the pedophile sex traffickers and all their enablers at every level of federal government are going to be exposed and jailed. But the dates kept changing, though. It's maybe maybe during Trump's inauguration, maybe during his first state of the union, maybe during the midterm elections or, you know, what? just after the midterm elections. That's when the snare is going to tighten. It's going to be too late. Oh, uh, well, maybe it's going to be as soon as his impeachment is done. He needs uh, time to maneuver. You know, Q said that we need to watch the waters. That means we need boat parades in July. Right. But but now they've lost the election. But actually, Trump won and then he's going to prove it too. And all of the, all these deep state jackals, oh, they're going to howl then, but that's not going to happen either. And come January, he's going to leave the white house willingly or in a more entertaining and gratifying manner. But either way, he's going to be gone. And then we'll get Trump television. Is that what Q was building up to? Is that what he meant? Is that what it means when we say where one we go all one we uh, I don't know what the whole phrase is. Is this what he meant literally in that we're going to all go into fake news television? You know, when these things happen to cults, they lose massive amounts of people and the people left in the core of the movement. They split, they fracture into mutually opposing subgroups. Leaders vie for power. You think leftist infighting is bad? Wait until you see the various Q factions, tradcons, anarcho-capitalists go to war with the tattered remains of the Republican establishment desperately trying to hold on to some kind of mainstream credibility. The craziest lefty sites, Marx, 
sure. But some of these people think God is on their side and wait till you see the fallout of that. And has Trump asked a lot for these people? Some of these people have sacrificed their jobs. Some people have sacrificed their health. Some people have sacrificed family. There's a lot. Maybe not all earthly possessions, but it's cost a lot. And and maybe I'm in danger of more of this, you know, Pollyanna I talk about that gets me in trouble sometimes. And I know this is all scary to go through as a country, but this isn't an ideology that's going to be able to get things together and get things done. It's just not. The reason they can't steal an election is because they literally can't. They're not capable of the complexity of such a plot. And America, to its credit, still doesn't seem willing to just let them do it without putting forth a modicum of effort. You know, they got to at least try. They got to have some evidence, you know, present some evidence in court. Speaking of court, maybe we should get on to our main topic. I thought it would be appropriate for a political podcast released during Thanksgiving to talk about stuffing. Stuffing the court. Packing the court, rebalancing the court. Yes, rebalancing the court. That's what we want to do, because the fact is, since the Democrats blocked Robert Bork from the Supreme Court way back in 1987 in the twilight of Ronald Reagan's political career, the Senate has been engaged in an open arms race to politicize this court. At the same time, congressional gridlock has made the Supreme Court an increasingly popular place to get things done politically. And these pressures have brought us to an era where Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell can hold open a year's worth of court appointments from a Democratic president, then ram through hundreds of lower court justices and three Supreme Court justices in less than four years. It's an era where despite winning only one popular election in the last 30 years, Republicans enjoy a 6-3 majority in the Supreme Court. So is the Supreme Court lost to progressives for a generation? Is there anything that can be done about that? You might have heard suggestions about uh, maybe we can just add more Supreme Court justices. Is it that easy? Is that legal? What happens if Republicans just add more the next time they're in power? Aiden is now joining us from his YouTube series, Socialism Done Left, to answer some of these questions. He recently impressed me during a debate about court balancing against uh, past three right turns guest, real life lawyer and neoliberal Bastiat. Now, I know Bastiat is a very sharp cookie who's opposed to court rebalancing. And I figured Aiden would kind of metaphorically get run out of the gymnasium in this debate. But I thought he held his own. Hell, I think he even won the debate. You can find his channel at YouTube.com slash Socialism Done Left. Aiden, welcome to the show. I, I greatly appreciate you for having me on. Thank you. Hey, no problem. Um, I um, like to start these interviews by talking about people's like kind of political background, you know, where they're from, uh, where they came from, especially anything that you might have like uh, transitioned in as far as like, you know, religious versus irreligious, uh, conservative versus progressive or, you know, maybe you've been steady Eddie all along. But I like to kind of give people an idea of your background and where you're coming from. So tell us a little bit about yourself before we get to the, the meat of the topic. I mean, sure. So mine's, my story is pretty much the, the bland, steady Eddie sort of one. I've always been pretty irreligious. I got more, like, I don't know, it's more atheist over time, I would say. Um, I have always been, like, reasonably progressive. I don't know, say that generally the trend of my politics was, like, I don't know, progressive parents, um, progressive, like, local family, uh, conservative high school, but that probably helped develop the progressiveness. If anything, the numbers for the the high school ran this mock election in 2016. I think I graduated 2016. And, um, 
I think the numbers were uh, 70% for Republicans and 30% for Democrats, such that um, the top two candidates were both Republicans. Like, were there a runoff race? Republicans won, won <laughs> twice. Wow. So, it, very conservative leading. Nice, nice. Um, well, I appreciate that background. Um, I brought you on tonight because, um, as I mentioned in intro, you'd really impressed me with the debate you had with uh, former Three Right Turns guest, Bastiat. Um, mm-hmm. and you did a really good showing yourself on, you know, he's a lawyer. I thought, you know, when you're debating things about court balancing, uh, or the court packing or whatever you want to call it, that, that, that he might've had you, but I thought, I thought you did a really good job and it's something I've been wanting to talk about with this audience for a while. Um, because well, I, I really appreciate that, uh, in some deference to Bastiat, this is a little bit more than just the law. It's also a political sort of thing. So he might not have like an innate advantage there. So that's true. That's true. It's, it's, what's political science more than it is a legal cha- uh, question, but the, 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 mm-hmm. the, the, the problem before us to the extent that it's a problem, uh, we have a six, three split in the Supreme court, um, throughout my entire life, uh, the court has been, you know, pretty much split down the middle. You've had four conservative, four liberals and a swing judge. And we've yep. had that equilibrium for an, almost an entire generation. And now we have a decisive 6-3 split on the Supreme Court. Um, I want to talk about, like, why is that a problem for progressives um, in terms of, like, what we want politically, but also in terms of, like, the democratic processes that led to that? Like, what what's rotten about having a 6-3 conservative court? I mean, so I, I think so in the debate, right, I cited a whole bunch of studies which show that the court generally ne- never gets too far out of line with public opinion, or at least that's been the long history of it. Um, and so one of the questions is, why does it never get too far out of public opinion? And a lot of uh, uh, related studies seem to show that what happens is the court gets too far out of line in public opinion, then Congress lays down the law and starts restricting the court's ability to do stuff. And so then the court gets pulled back in line with public opinion, or the president changes seats because the court is so out of line with public opinion they put that the people put the other party in power they get more people in the supreme court and it comes back in line with public opinion so the concern is that we've never had a court that's as conservative as it is now a variety of metrics show that this is the most conservative court since they've started tracking it so either since i think 1935 and um, one of the projects or like 1954 or something in the other one um so, like, this represents either, like, we're going to have to start to do some sort of backlash to this and, like, bring it back in line with popular opinion, um, which would be, like, a success of democracy, or we're not going to be able to do that. And there's going to be this, like, long-term, 30, 40-year, like, bias against progressive policies, um, more or less short-circuiting whatever electoral gains we make, because the Supreme Court would just keep ruling and ruling against it. And the outcomes of that are actually a little bit worrying, because it either means, one, we obey the Supreme Court, which preserves the institution but destroys progressive policy, or two, we start to ignore the Supreme court, which is like the other thing that we've seen throughout history. And that starts to destroy the institution. So both outcomes here are really, really bad. Uh, one thing I want to talk about, because we, we've talked a little bit in general about why the stakes are so high. You know, we talk about like losing the court for a generation and that has impact on, you know, progressive legislature. What are we talking about in particular? Is this just like Roe v. Wade? Like, oh, uh, that might get undone. And then women, you know, it's going to go back to the states and like, out, you know, like all the red states are going to like there's a lot of them that have like these provisions that as soon as Roe v. Wade gets inactive, like abortion essentially is unavailable in half the country. Is it just mm-hmm. stuff like that that we know about or like what 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 are the few like what future legislation could be impacted by this, do you think? I mean, so there's lots of like uh you know, close examples like Citizens United or various relates to like the Voting Rights Act, which were decided five four, and so it's very possible to imagine that in and they were they were cited already in the in the current world in favor of the conservatives. But it's very possible to imagine that there are 
bills that have been in front of the court, like, for example, the Affordable Care Act, which due to the moderate vote was not fully eliminated, but was merely like rehashed in such a way that conservative states didn't need to buy into it. It's very easy to imagine that, hey, had it been a 5-4 with a more solid conservative majority, where it was like three Democrats swing and then like five um, conservatives, that then they're just going to delete the whole bill. And affordable care is gone, and you've like lost 20 million people off their insurance. You've enormously changed pre-existing condition. You have these like enormous changes to the, the regulatory environment um, when you have those like increased conservative majorities if they actually vote that way. Um, and I think the so the, the first point is like there are a lot of existing legislations to be very worried about. I think my concern, like whenever people ask me, hey, what is the most important thing you care about in the American political system? It's always electoral reforms. And so the Supreme Court has not been very much in favor of ending stuff like gerrymandering. Um, right. It has not been very much in favor of worrying about voter suppression. It has not been very much in favor of worrying about like partisan suppression of the vote. Um, and all of that is even more likely to see no progress whatsoever, more likely to stay in the current like conservative bias system if there is a conservative Supreme Court. Um, and the concern is that, in fact, it might even get worse, that you might see like increased expansion for what is allowable under gerrymandering um, in a more conservative court, particularly one where a majority of Republican voters and a majority of Republican partisans are increasingly more comfortable with like this idea of long term minority party rule. And as far as the like the gerrymander stuff, like it's pretty dire, like at, at the way it stands now, unless a legislature actually says we are enacting these districts to specifically crack down on black and Latino voters. Yes. We are carving. And like unless you specifically say, oh, we're doing this for partisan racist reasons that. The Supreme Court's going to be like, well, who knows? You know, it's like yeah. the, the Supreme Court has literally said that it's OK to gerrymander for partisan reasons. And so right. I expect, you know, that, that's not going to get worse under a conservative majority per se. You might get more, like you'll just continually getting double, double downing on that. Um, but it's possible that you could even see changes to like um, you could see that when people. How do I put this? There have been new uh, critiques of gerrymandering raised, which are based on stronger arguments. Um, so most of the previous like uh, Supreme Court cases about gerrymandering were more or less just coming in and saying, hey, these court cases are unfair. They cause a partisan disadvantage. But they didn't have any fancy mathematical formulas to back them up, which a whole lot of the more modern gerrymandering cases do, because there's been a lot of theoretical research on that. So I was just going to point to these uh, examples of these studies, because the, the authors in charge of these studies have specifically created formulas about how to measure partisan impacts of um, gerrymandering. And so universally, they find that gerrymandering, while Democrats do it, tends to favor the Republicans more so than the Democrats. Um, that's the reason I suggested before that 54% uh, of the popular vote is what Democrats have to win to win a majority in the House, because there's about a 4.4% bias in favor of Republicans on average in House districts. Um, though to be clear, it's not actually an average. It's mostly like six or seven states that the gerrymandering is um, concentrated in for really, really heavy partisan reasons. More generally, um, the basic idea is that these like more nuanced critiques of gerrymandering, which might have gotten by in like a, a court which was willing to at least believe like, hey, people do have a right to one man, one vote, are increasingly unlikely to be successful in a conservative dominated majority where you've seen a world of conservatives talking about how we don't live in a democracy, about how we live in a republic, how you've got all these originalists who say we need to go back to what the founders wanted. The founders did not care about democracy. Um, mm -hmm. sure. So I, all of this is very worrying. That, yeah. That's the way I would put it. We, the, the one thing that came up again and again in the debate you had was the fact that like the Supreme Court uh, only derives its power solely from the fact that it's perceived as legitimate. Um, there's this quote, I think, yep. by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's like the court has no army. The court has no uh, treasure in terms of like uh, enforcing its own stuff. So they really rely on the fact that the people 
even when bitterly divided things like Roe v. Wade, uh, Citizens United, that like at the end of the day, the cup's like, well, you know, the the men and women in these robes said it. So uh, it's mm-hmm. true. And I think that's the crux of the, you know, pushback to the idea of rebalancing the court. Like you've got this institution that's kind of been perverted a little bit and maybe there's some dirty tricks played. But if you mm-hmm. start adding justices, it's going to be an arms race. And if you don't like like when the Republicans, they'll add a couple and then the Democrats take power back, they'll add a couple. And pretty soon you've got the galactic Senate chamber from mm-hmm. revenge of the Sith of, of justices, just like thousands mm-hmm. and thousands of them in little hovering pods and controlling everything. Um, do you Which, think while it would be cool, it would also be highly dysfunctional, right? It would. It probably would be. It would be a little bit more like the House of Republicans, we, or House of Representatives, rather. Uh, I do you, what, Is that a reasonable fear, do you think, the fact that there, we would be locked in a never-ending expansion war? And if so... What what are the ways out of that, or is there a way to to do rebalancing without having to 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 have that as a, as an issue? I guess I would say I think that there is a legitimate fear. I don't think that it's unfounded to think that we could see more and more escalation because in part the long history of the court since like the 1990s particularly has been this increasing, increasing partisanship. Um, There's this neat graph from 538 and you can find the data like more directly, which shows that votes on like uh, candidates Supreme Court has been getting more and more partisan. Back in like the 70s, the vast majority of votes, like I want to say like six and eight or something, passed like 90 to two or something along those lines. You had a few, like Bork, that were very controversial, but you had very few that were voted across based on party line. And then through the 90s, you see this rising, rising, rising partisanship, and it really hasn't stopped. So I could conceivably see maybe that extends beyond um, just that partisanship, and it does become sort of a court race. Um, This is where I quite like the idea of... um, I believe the term is using constitutional hardball to reduce escalation. That's like the, the, the general concept. It's that you should try to set up a solution in such a way that you pack the court, you rebalance the court in such a way that Republicans also have an incentive to buy into this new institution. So the solution that um, the author that I cited proposed is basically put, let's say, two liberal Supreme Court justices um, so that now it's back to what it used to be, right? It's like one more conservative than liberal. You got 11 judges at this point, right? 11 judges um, who would be six conservative, five liberal, or, you know, five conservative, five liberal, one swing, however you want to call it, uh, which returns it to more or less the, the, what is it, like the status quo antebellum sort of thing. Right, the the Um, pre-Connell shenanigans. Yes, the pre-Shenanigan Supreme Court. And um, then you pass a law which says um, unless uh, you, like the entire Congress, agrees to pass either a law or ideally an amendment which sets in stone that we're going to change the way that we appoint Supreme Court justices, um, we will appoint more judges. And so the goal of this is there will we will be playing hardball, and there is a risk that Republicans will take the escalatory path on that. They will just say, hey, our, our gains are too important um, t- to just let them go away to just change the way that we appoint the Supreme Court. Um, but basically, the, the reason you pass this law is it's actually to their benefit to um, take the non-escalatory path and reform the court. Also, I can't tell if there was like a bunch of lag there. Uh, no, no. Um, so I, I, I hear all that. I also want to talk about just the, the hardball aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's entirely persuasive to think that you'd have the Galactic Senate Chamber because I think that you know, to the extent that court rebalancing and court packing would be unpopular, um, you've the Democrats have a narrative they can sell. It's like, well, you know, we had a seat that was ours. It was literally stolen 
And then under this pretext that was then perverted to put yet another judge. And like at some point, like if you don't steal something back, if you if you let the thief keep the property, what incentive is there to have them not to do that in the future? The incentive is mm-hmm. that you have to kind of fuck them back. And like yep. so like if, if we put it's on. Yeah. So if we go 13 justices and now we've got like a, a majority of justices and the Republicans want to do that four years later. Let them try. Can they can they take the public opinion hit? Can they get the like can they? They use their political capital to do that like it's not i don't think it's like at one point the american people will get fed up and one side or the other will be the loser and like why would it have to be us so i definitely agree like like the, there's definitely um it would also impose a risk on Republicans, right? Like if they're going to, if their way that they're going to argue this is like, oh, the Democrats are destroying the institution by adding more justices and their solution is, well, we're going to add more justices. It is a little bit hard to sell that in the eyes of like the people, I would hope. But in particular, my concern is not, I, in, were we talking like a different time period with a different media landscape, I would be much more amenable to this argument. But the problem is we increasingly live in the world of like Fox News and One America News Network and so on. And I'm really worried that basically Republicans are going to live in an alternate reality where whatever Democrats do is unjustified, undemocratic, and destroying the system, and Republicans are simply restoring it to its natural order. So yeah. I, I don't necessarily have as much faith in the people, as it were, the voters, to make that decision. Um, I wonder, I, 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 I sometimes, I'd, maybe this is me being Pollyanna, but I sometimes wonder, like, there's got to be an expiration date on this supreme divorcing of facts from reality, that, like, this will eventually... Uh, like it'll it'll turn into this kind of snake eating its own tail until they're um you know fleecing ever smaller groups of 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 uh, republican faithful and to kind of destroy the the party will die off that way because like how can you know if if you're you know one of the reasons like fascism fascist organizations are so ineffective is because they get increasingly divorced from the real threats to Reality. their society, the real yes. problems, and they keep attacking these fake ones ineptly, mm-hmm. and eventually they collapse upon themselves. Um, I, 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 but the, the, I guess the hell of it is we're in this unique period of time where we have so many pressing things, if nothing else, the environment that, like, you know, uh, if if we fuck around for twenty years waiting for the media landscape to to shake out and sanity to be restored, it might be too late to. That's the concern, right? It's that there's a lot of really pressing issues um, and that they might be too late. Or I think the one issue that we don't think of necessarily as like a policy issue, but it's like the maintenance of democratic institutions, democratic legitimacy. Um, And so I think that there's this concern that if we do this, the the concern that Bastiat basically presents is what if we do this and the the Republicans escalate and now we've like destroyed the Supreme Court, that it just keeps escalating, escalating, and we've just destroyed this like fundamental bedrock of American democracy. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do do think that outcome is, is very, very worrying. And so too is the outcome of like being stuck with a very conservative Supreme Court and not being able to pass any legislation on these extremely pressing issues. I guess to, to answer a little bit your, your previous question, um, which is about like, is there a timestamp like at which this will start to go away? And I, I think literally part of this, so I, I posted a study um, and there's lots of similar studies that it tends to be the case that people who are like less educated, people who are more conservative and people who are um, older, who tend to be more like susceptible to fake news. There's a whole bunch of studies that show that like the, the more educated in general and the more specifically educated people are about like how news works, um, the less susceptible they are to like fake news. There's actually, there's this really famous study I can pull from, not famous, but like famous in the context of fake news prevention 
studies. So uh, a small circle there um, that in Ukraine, which gets an enormous amount of Russian trolling, um, just like an insane amount. Um, there was like a 26 percent reduction or something in belief in fake news after this one like fake news education course. And so I do think that as we increasingly see a diverse Republican electorate, um, because the modern Republican electorate is increasingly becoming like more racially diverse, they're much more in favor of stuff like um if you just pull it, like, do you, do they think that, like, blacks face systemic issues in this country? They tend to believe stuff more like that. They tend to be more educated. I think that in the long run, demographic trends, um, both, like, racial and economic, um, will tend to put both parties on the course towards a more fact-based reality. But that's currently not the, like, reality we're living in, unfortunately. I want to talk because like, we, we talked about how like we got the six, three split and how that's potentially bad for progressive policies for a generation to come. But I want to talk yep. about it because it's not just the Supreme Court. Right. And and the fact that like it's not like the Supreme Court is entirely got all of its legitimacy that, it, that it's the legitimacy that's always had. Because you pointed out yeah, you had a couple statistics. I don't have them right on my fingertips. Maybe, you know, but like no worries. Um, the fact that like there's a huge percentage of circuit district and appellate court justices, like 25 percent of all positions have been filled by Donald Trump in the last four years. I think that was one of the numbers uh, that sh- that you cited. And like, you know, I think we've it's like all 15 seen percent, but either way, it's an enormous percent. Like it's a very and, worryingly high percent. Yeah. yeah. And they did. And they did that by holding, you know, vacancies that opened up for the Obama, like McConnell held those hostage or held those open until, uh, you know, Trump took power. Uh, the other thing that they've done is like, if you go back to like, I, I forget the exact statistic, but if you go back to like to the Bush administration, you know, the Republicans have won, uh, only like, like one or like, no, he goes, he goes back to the Reagan days. Like the, like the last Reagan administration, the, the Republicans have only won two popular votes, and that like 30 year period, and yet they've uh, nominated like nine out of 13 Supreme Court justices. Like it I is. Forget if it's since, I think I forget if it's since 1988 or 1992 or whatever, but they've only won Bush 2004 in the popular vote for an incredibly long period of time. Like in the time that I've been alive, they've won one popular vote election and they've right. appointed the majority of Supreme Court justices and a majority of like um, uh, justices in general. So, so it's, it's not just like the fact that it's a split that's a problem because, you know, if it was, uh, you know, we, we were in a divided time. If we were going Democrat, Republican, Republican, Democrat, Democrat, and, and it was kind of like just that's the luck of the draw. But like a lot of this feels kind of engineered, which is not like a, a, what I what I got out of your guys' discussion is like most people when they say pack the courts are not talking about just like adding justices. It's more of like putting systemic changes to make the process itself more fair and more democratic. Um, I, I'm sure there's some people who just say, I just want like the short term electoral gain. I just want the people in the Supreme Court so I can pass laws now. But I think I hope anyway that most people who are interested in this are interested in like, I want more courts on there because I want, I'm sorry, more justices on the court because I want the court to represent like broadly what most people believe and to provide some sort of legal like analysis of like fairness and applying the Constitution to laws that currently exist. And it shouldn't be too far out of line with the, the people's will, which Republican presidents generally are and like government in general generally is. There's there's a significant like conservative bias in U.S. legislation, U.S. governance. Um, I want to throw a couple other arguments that the Bastiat made that I thought were fairly effective to see, you know, what you have to say about it, especially after thinking about it for a, a bit more. But he mentioned that, like, even though we've we've had these like this highly divided partisan court for, you know, the last few years, uh, still that like. You know, only like 25 percent of the decisions that came out of Supreme Court in that period of time were like a five, four bitterly divided split, like 50 percent are mm-hmm. unanimous decisions, which I thought was like an incredible number. And I guess that's more unanim- unanimity that's been since like F- the days of FDR. 
Um, so like, is there this idea? And also we know that once a pro, uh, uh, justice gets on there, they're there for life. So they might decide, you know what? I don't really want to fuck over people anymore. I'm as high as I can get. No one can get rid of me. I'm going to actually do something crazy, which is just call things right down the middle of the plate. Mm-hmm. Um, are we, there, there's this, this idea and especially around like, around moderates and centrists that like, maybe we're jumping the gun and maybe we should wait for a bad result. Maybe we should wait until uh, like a, a, a real fear materializes before we do something drastic, like change the number of the Supreme Court. Um, what do you say to those arguments? I mean, so my response to the idea that like, hey, the court has mostly been handing down these relatively unanimous bills. I'm sorry, the, these relatively unanimous um votes is I think that generally that's also what you see out of Congress because Congress is so gridlocked and because there is so much disagreement. Many of the bills that do pass are those that either can win on partisan lines. So they'll be like very, very split or they will have near unanimous support. It'll be stuff like we're adding a new stamp. We're naming a post office mm. or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of my concerns in that statistic, and I didn't follow up with Bastiat about this is what percent of those are like quote unquote salient decisions. Um, what are the, like what percent are decisions that are politically charged? Uh, were those like unanimous decisions were things that like Americans agree 70% like, Hey, I believe freedom of speech applies to X, Y, Z. So we're just all going to vote in favor. Um, and there's also or, or a lot of purely, yeah. there's also like just a lot of purely like technical issues yes. of like corporate law that don't yes. affect hardly anyone. It's kind of like, yeah, it's more because I used to follow a Supreme court podcast and like a shocking amount of the decisions the Supreme court makes are kind of like not Somebody really a big deal. Right? Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. And so that's so I did. I can't dig into it. I didn't or rather I didn't follow up with him about it. But that would be my my inclination that a lot of the things that aren't politically charged are the ones that they're voting near unanimous on, much like the way that Congress is doing it. Um, So I think the the concern is kind of um, I think there is a backstop on the Supreme Court in that, again, in the long history of the United States, generally when the Supreme Court gets really out of line, there is a Democratic pushback to it. So there is some. power to the moderates argument that we we might jump the gun a little bit um, because if the Supreme Court really, really does do stuff way out of line, it will actually then empower the Democrats. Democrats will get more power. They can maybe rein in the Supreme Court. Um, though, of course, in what way would be, they be reining in the Supreme Court except by appointing more justices or limiting the court's power to rule, which is what they've done in the past. Um, so I, on the flip side, though, I think that my concern is, um, let's say we're in a position where, where we were, say, for the 2020 election, where it's not a majority support Republicans, but it's almost enough that they can sometimes get people into power. Um, mm. So like 47 percent, 45 percent support, which is enough to get them through the Electoral College. It's enough to get them like Senate victories and stuff. My concern then is that you might start to see um, Senate and um, president and Supreme Court justices ruling the way that a lot of Republicans around the country are ruling, which is preparing for a long-term minority rule. Um, you see Republicans gerrymandering. I think the stat I brought up in the debate is that um, Democrats on average need to win 54.4% of the popular vote to win the U.S. House, which is an enormous bias in, yeah. in elections as partisan as, and as divided as like the United States' is are. Um I mean, a 55-45 result in an election race is considered a runaway victory. But it's just yeah. what you need to break even uh, when you're playing yeah. for the House. When you're the Democrats, it's just what you need to break even. And in the Senate, it's even worse. The bias is actually even worse. And we've just been mostly lucky because we have these long-term incumbents in really good years that like keep and keep winning. Um, but that might increasingly not be the case. Uh, there's this, this is a little bit technical, but uh, in, in, in like ancient history of the 70s or whatever, there was a lot of ballot splitting between Senate and Republicans. And that has increasingly increasing, not Republicans, for um 
the president and the Senate vote, there was a lot of ballot splitting. But then over time, those ballots have gotten closer and closer together. So increasingly, the Senate vote mirrors the presidential vote. The Senate vote mirrors the House vote. There's less and less vote splitting because we are increasingly partisan. And so a lot of those holdovers, I think, will start to be going and going and going away. So the Senate might, in a long, in the very long term, um, were there to be no reform, might just be like permanently lost to uh, a party which can't appeal to like the more rural states, which is mm. also very worrying. We talk about these things in terms of partisan politics, the fact that like Congress is so gridlocked. Um, one mm-hmm. of the things that came out in like your guys' debate is the fact that one of the problems is, you know, the United States is designed to have these like three independent branches that jealously protect our own power, legislative, executive, yep. uh, uh, judicial. You know, we learned all this stuff in civics class. Um, the problem is, is because there is so much gridlock in Congress, they have increasingly off sourced their legislative power to uh, yep. the executive branch. We know all that, the runaway power of executive orders, et cetera. And also the judicial, like the, like a lot of the, a lot of the signet, you know, a lot of the signature kind of, uh, you know, progressive agenda. Yeah, we, wins, we still don't marriage. have nationwide same-sex marriage. It's a court order that's just hanging on by by a thread. So we don't. So. We don't really have a nationwide right for abortion that's like enshrined in law. It's it's also these yeah. things are like are kind of hanging by judicial threads. Um, so the idea is like if 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 the the Supreme Court's the last kind of like pressure valve in this system where it's like you know like the pressure's backing up and it's the, the pipes are screaming mm-hmm. and what is what does court packing or court rebalancing is that going to make these partisan issues worse where like one party says you know uh, starts throwing a fit and seeing these things as illegitimate and now we don't now there that's the last of the i guess pressure relief valves and and then what happens i mean Again, I think this one's really hard to prove. Like in the Bastiat debate, he cited the example of 1930s FDR. FDR wanted to pack the courts and it significantly hurt him. So the the historical context of that is like, if you don't know, FDR, the Democrats had control of the country. Like two thirds or like majorities. Super, they super like, like super majorities in the in the House, super majorities in the Senate, wildly popular four term president. And he got pissed off at the court threatened him with with packing it and and uh it kind of like it hit well, a political disaster befell them. So it was somewhat a political disaster. But what I will say, so again, one of the studies is whenever uh, Supreme Court gets too out of line in popular opinion, the, in history anyway, it's been that the Congress will rein it in because historically Congress has been one of those jealous branches of power. They want to keep power. They don't want uh, Supreme Court to get too far out of line. And so when they think popular opinion is sufficiently on their side, they screw over the court a little bit. That's basically what you saw in FDR. You saw in the 1890s, 1860s. You've seen it throughout history. This is not like like a, a rare event, I guess is what I would say. Court packing is on the extreme end of it, but it's not like a, it is part of the spectrum of tactics the Congress uses to restrain the, the court's power. Um, so I guess my concern is it's possible that there could be like um, an electoral backlash. It's certainly possible that that's true. Um, but one of the questions is, um, so to return to it uh, a little bit, you talked about the jealous branches, the jealous branches of, sorry, I can't speak, the jealous <laughs> branches of government. The separation of powers. And, Yes. And uh, part of the problem with this is that it only works if the branches are in genuinely competing with each other. But if instead we see it as parties within the branches are competing against party, like the other party in all of those branches, mm. it's very easy to imagine how the branches collaborate. Um, so Congress doesn't weaken the president when the president is on their side. But what we see in like states around the country, like I, I think it's famous in North Carolina, um, they elected a Democrat governor and the, the Republican owned um, Congress passed a whole bunch of legislation to weaken the power of the incoming governor. So right, Congress really was very jealous there. Yeah. 
Yeah, because it was a partisan fight, but they felt no need to do that before the guy in the same party was in power. And so I think what you start to see is that these checks and balances only work if the branches are actually competing as opposed to the parties competing. And because we live in such increasingly partisan times, it doesn't seem like that's a reasonable belief. In short, one of my, like, the way that I would think about this is like, were the, the roles reversed, I'm almost certain the Republicans would be certainly in favor of court packing. They have been in favor of gerrymandering. They've been in favor of appointing justices to like state courts. They've been in favor of taking powers away from uh, the, the, the governors, the like pseudo presidents of the various states around the country. They are all in favor of reforming laws to give themselves more power. I have very little faith in the idea that they truly care about democratic institutions as a party. Um, and they're just so worried about the Supreme Court. It is. It does feel like we do have an uphill battle to face because uh, I've looked at the, the the polling on this, and it looks like that mm-hmm. even amongst like dim uh, is it's I'm not sure if it's American people or it's it's, it's Democrats in particular that the support the uh, support for it um, is like mid forty percent are against it, like forty five to forty six, forty seven percent, and then mid thirties are for it. And there's obviously some percentage points that are kind of ambivalent. Um, how the hell do we do something like rebalancing the court if it's we're starting from a position of it being unpopular? So the example I cited with Bastia, and I like this one just because the numbers line up exactly, is that right now, 47% of people support, um, oppose, sorry, 47% of people oppose court packing, 34% support court packing, which means net 13% oppose court packing. If you look at impeachment, prior to the announcement of the impeachment articles, it was the exact same net support. 51% were against impeachment, 38% were in favor of impeachment. But once Nancy Pelosi announced the articles of impeachment, it flipped by um, what's that? 19 points. Uh, so that now instead of being 13 points against impeachment, it was six points in favor of impeachment. And the vast majority of this movement, to be clear, was just Democrats falling in line with the Democratic Party. Because again, partisanship is a hell of a drug. When the Republican mm-hmm. Party says jump, all the De- Republican Party voters jump. The same is true, but slightly less true of the Democratic Party voters. Um, and so I guess one of the ways that I think about this is um, – Politicians do have a large role in setting the messaging and changing what people believe. That is like one of the messages of the Trump era. Republicans were like 70% in favor of free trade. Trump came in. Now they're 20% in favor of free trade. You can enormously change people's opinions on these um, these policies, basically, um, just by having the leadership change their tone. Um, so were we to genuinely pursue this, it should be like a unified message of the Democratic Party that like we need to do rebalancing. And then I do think we would generally see this sort of realignment. The concern, of course, is that like in impeachment, um, when the Democrats announced the articles of impeachment, Republicans didn't get more in favor of impeachment. Um, they're not going to get more in favor of court packing, I'm almost certain. They will see it as a partisan issue. And so sure. that might drive them out to vote. Um, that was a concern about impeachment. And we don't really have data to prove that because of COVID. There was like an enormous external shock to the way people voted. But um, that was one of the concerns with impeachment. And we still don't actually know which which is true. So. So uh, a lot of times, you know, this like, again, we've, we talked about this in terms of, um, you know, the the unpopular way to frame this is going to pack the courts because it sounds it, yeah. it, it, it sounds inherently corrupt. It sounds like something. Well, a and everyone's machine. heard in history that FDR wanted to pack the court. It's literally right. something you're taught that is bad. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, or the other option, I guess, is to do like the Andrew Jackson and just be like, well, fuck what the Supreme Court says. Mm-hmm. We're, we're I've let them enforce their laws, you know, Um <laughs> But what, you know, we're going to have to spend, there's there going to be some expenditure of political capital on this. And if, we gonna, if we're going to do it, 
we got to make sure that we, you know, we, we maximize our chances of long term rebalancing and making it democratic and fair and minimize our chances of just getting into the Galactic Senate situation where we just yeah. just tear down the legitimacy of one of the last trusted arms of the government. Um, you mentioned mm-hmm. you guys went through a bunch of different uh, proposals to do so to, to rebalance the Supreme Court. It's not just a matter of like, well, we're just going to add justices. We're just going to add justices, you know, just yes. keep lining them out. Um, I want to talk about um, there is uh, you guys mentioned a couple and then I want to get that there was there's two I want to talk about then one that you championed. There's one that is called the and I guess these are these were ideas that are being championed by the Yale uh, law school, like a uh, student society or something. At least certain authors within um, the Yale law school. Yeah, there you go. Uh, like the Supreme Court five by five by five. What is that scheme? Sure. So this is not um, a scheme. What is that well thought, reasonable plan to rebound support? <laughs> so the the way that um, that proposal would work is there would be 15 people on the Supreme Court and five of them would be Republicans. Five of them would be Democrats. So it explicitly builds a partisan institution, uh, which might set it up to work better in an increasingly partisan environment, uh, which is a mark in its favor. The idea is that on this 15 person court, the five Democrats and the five Republicans have to uh, appoint the remaining five uh, justices from the federal judiciary. Um, So they pick out candidates that they want to put on the court and they all have to agree like unanimously or near unanimously. So you've got to get like, I don't know, nine votes or something out of the Republicans and Democrats. So you have one defection or something along those lines and you get someone else on the court for a given year. So the idea is the people in the middle are going to tend to be the like people that are reasonably moderate, that are reasonably good legal scholars um, and they aren't hated too much by either party. So the goal then is that generally you wouldn't end up with partisans in the middle. Now, the obvious question is, well, what if they can't? What if like every candidate they're looking at gets like eight votes or something? Because there is such extreme partisanship. They say the Supreme Court basically then can't hear cases for a year. So the Supreme Court is strongly incentivized to pick moderate um, cases, moderate like leaders, if they want to actually be able to hear courts, um, hear cases and exercise their power. So that's the scheme there. My concern hmm. with this immediately is uh, we just talked about how there's partisan infighting, not just between like there aren't just branches fighting each other. It's partisan infighting like across multiple branches. Let's say that they're, like the Democrats, for example, had control of the Senate, the House and the presidency. What do they care if the Supreme Court isn't going to hear cases for a year? They don't care. They can just pass laws and it'll be totally fine. So sure. there's this concern that when you're in power, you'll be totally fine with not appointing any people. But then when you're out of power, oh, you're all for moderacy. That sounds actually kind of cool. But like, man, how do you get the five five split? And even if you had it, how do you maintain it? Like what happens if somebody defects? You know, you have a. Uh... Uh, what is it, like Stevens, you know, like he's a, a nominated mm-hmm. by a conservative and then, you know, uh, was, people uh, shift their judicial philosophies all the time. Yep. Sure. It's, sure. Um, I, I mean, so I don't know their specific method for doing so. I would have to assume it's something based on like um, since it's an explicitly partisan institution, I think that they could just say something like, hey, the Democrats will propose someone and they'll get on the court, something along those lines. Hmm. Um and that's like, like leaning into like, OK, the court's going to be partisan. Let's just assume it's going to be partisan. How can we kind of build safeguards around that to make sure it's still representative yes. of the people? And, and the goal specifically there is that their their argument is that the partisan interest of both parties is at least like they hope um, that like the Democrats and the Republicans will want to appoint a moderate five in the middle. So the actual court cases that are decided will be decided by these moderates because the five Dems will always vote in favor of the Dems. The five Republicans will always vote in favor of the Republicans. The moderates, they hope, will actually be legally viable. So there's like a it it leans into partisanship and it tries to harness partisanship to bring it to a less partisan Mm -hmm. solution which Uh, is interesting i just don't think it will work 
Yeah, there's I I'm like, man, it sounds like, well, what you really want to do is you have a panel of five conservative and five liberal justices that just choose the Supreme Court. It's a five five. They they you you, you pick the Supreme Court justices to, to pick the actual Supreme Court. You just let those five people, you know, what you've basically done. I, so the, uh, this is the way I think about it. You've basically created a miniature Senate um, yeah, where before yeah. you had 100 people voting on the candidates. Now you've created two miniature Senates, one Republican of five people and one Democrat of five people. And they try to then pick a third like, exactly. like Supreme Court branch. Yeah, it's, it's um, Supreme Court with extra steps. Um, what about the <laughs> Supreme Court lottery scheme? The I'll call this a scheme. It's got the word lottery right in it. The Supreme Court lottery so, scheme. So this one doesn't actually. So the, the basic scheme is let's pick a number nine, right? Nine is the number of justices you're going to randomly pick. Currently, you've got, oh, I want to say it's like 247, like some number of federal justices. You pick nine names out of a hat. Those guys are on the Supreme Court. When you say um, federal so justices, are you talking like circuit, district, and appellate, or is it just one or the other? I'm, I think it might just be appeals courts, but again, it's been, it's been a while since I read this proposal. I don't want to okay. badmouth it, but gotcha. in either way, I think you could make, make the argument that it's a valid way of doing these things. Like it could just be the appeals. It could be all of them. Either way, it's like a reasonably valid way of approaching these things. So this, the general method, this is called um, sortition. Sortition has like a long history of being involved in democracies. It's not as like crazy as it sounds. The way mm. we make juries is sortition. We randomly pick mm. 12 people from the general populace. The way that um, ancient Athens actually made its it's a very adversarial process, right? It's like, you know, like, I hate this yes. guy. I hate this guy. He can't be on it. The other team does the same. And whoever's left is. So that's actually so that, uh, jury selection is sortition plus adversarial selection. So it's first oh. you randomly pick a bunch of people. Now, the, the, the reason I was pointing to Greece is they had the more like they had just sortition. They literally had a bunch of names in like these like stone tablets. And they had this really fancy stone machine where it would like be like a what is it like a Kachinko Plinko machine or whatever? Yeah, like this ball yeah. would drop down. It would select one of the rows of names and that row of names, a hundred names would be the court for a day. And so it was literally a random selection of a hundred people. And that just was the court. There were no judges. It was literally just a hundred randomly selected people. Their argument for it was that you can't bribe a hundred randomly selected people, uh, but you can bribe a judge. That was more mm. or less their argument for it. So, Interesting. um, Regardless of the merits of sortition, like as running the government in general, I definitely do think that we, we are clearly okay with it in some aspects of the justice system already. So it's not that crazy to say, hey, this is how we should do the Supreme Court. The main problem with it is sortition works best with large numbers. There's there's a statistical, literally call, called the law of large numbers. If you flip mm-hmm. a coin four times, it's not that unlikely you'll get two heads. Um, it's literally one in four. Um, but if you get a mixture, that's 50% and like two tails, another one fourth. So with small numbers, you actually get this like very wide distribution Swingy, of what the yeah. results will be. Yes. But when you get to like 5,000 coin flips, you get to like 49.9 every time. It's, mm. it's just a statistical law that as the number of people involved, number of like flips involved, um, you get to this certain result. Um, and the basic problem is that nine is not big enough. There would be an enormous amount of variation in court cases, even if you had the identical case and you gave it to different justices. Like if we imagine we're only talking about politically salient issues where Democrats would vote differently to Republicans. Uh, I'm pretty sure I ran the numbers on this. And it, the, the, this system is literally equivalent to a normal distribution. So mm-hmm. for any given like case, you would have a 50% chance um, Assuming that the, the federal judiciary is 50% Republican, 50% Democrat. Any given case, you'd have a 50% chance that the Democrats win, 50% chance the Republicans win. And there's a significant chance, like a 30% chance, you have these extreme, like, 7-2 sort of rulings. Mm. Um, so the basic problem with it is, I like the concept. The number is too small. The maths just aren't there. Um, 
Oh, one more thing I did want to say in favor of sortition. We literally already currently do this for the federal um, appeals court. Out of all the appeals judges on any given federal case, three are randomly selected, and those mm-hmm. are the, the justices for your appeals case, which, again, has all the problems of sortition. And I kind of hate that that exists, but it's all that the system is doing is taking the currently non-functioning bad system and just applying it to the Supreme Court because their argument is, hey, this non-functioning bad system is better than what we currently have, which is an even worse, even more badly functioning Supreme Court appointment system. <laughs> Uh, so there was one other one that I think is the one that you pretend you, you in particular champion. Do you want to walk us through the the final uh, court balancing proposal? Or I, I'm sure there's more, but like the the ones that we're going to talk about tonight. Sure. So the third one and the one that I like is uh, again, it's one that leads in leans into partisanship. It's just ranked choice um, Supreme Court selection. Um, so the, the Ooh, we're big before- fans of ranked choice voting here on three right turns. Yep. BT does. Ranked choice vote, it's really good. So let's imagine we just have like the, the super simple form of ranked choice where you, you've got like, I don't know, you've got three candidates, you link one, two, three. So um, you, you rank, I don't know, Bob is first, uh, Candace is second, and Alice is third, something along those lines. Um, and if Bob doesn't win, your candidate, your, your vote goes to the second one. And if the second one doesn't win, it goes to the third one, on and on. It's single transferable vote. So super simple, highly critiqued version of RCV. Um, the, the basic idea is that this system allows for a natural selection of moderates. Um, if you set, for example, a, a threshold of like 70 votes, like a reasonably high supermajority in the Senate, you would tend to get people who are approved of by moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans because they would be the first ones to get to 70 votes. Um, and I can work through the steps for that a little bit more clearly. But I, I think that if you're familiar with ranked choice voting, there's a reason that it tends to favor like moderate candidates in, in general. Um, right. So the argument is that this sort of ranked choice voting with a high threshold or ranked choice voting where you appoint multiple people, like you have five candidates that you appoint all at once, either of these systems would lead to a distribution of moderate candidates being appointed to the Supreme Court. Um, So this one I like just because it doesn't have any obvious ways for parties to game the system like the 5-5 court does. It doesn't have any of these statistical problematic issues that the... um, uh, the lottery court has, it does have a problem that ranked choice vote can be strategically played to like make certain candidates win. Um, but you can reduce a lot of those with improving on the ranked choice model. So that's about it. Well, how do other, cause I, there's one other thing I wanted to point out, which is term limiting Supreme court. Yes, justices. Yes, yes. Uh, that's like something in addition to all of these systems. Yeah. yeah so so is, is that something that you think would be a beneficial extra step in uh, all these other improvements? Or do you think it's an either or, or, because like if you if you turn so, limited to like what fifteen to eighteen years like that would if if you know that would that would uh, smooth out some of this like well Trump gets three and Obama only got two in eight years and you know like it it it, it you could create like a nice little rotation where everyone kind of gets their turn and there's never going to be like crazy it's it's not going to be a death lottery anymore. So uh, I definitely agree with term limits. I would say that they aren't necessarily like, I think that they are a good thing just regardless of um, the partisan lean of the Supreme Court. Uh, I I posted a graph and it's very easy to find this sort of information where the average tenure of people in the Supreme Court has been ticking upwards and upwards and upwards. And it's not because like we're appointing them younger and younger. It's not because of partisan appointments. Um, There's no trend in like how young people are. It's just that they're living longer and longer and longer. Hmm. And so the enormous increase... I thought it was for sure there was this getting younger, younger people up there. there, There's like there's like a slight decrease, like a one year decrease in average age of appointment. But that's just meaningless. I think think Mitch McConnell is going to put up a third year law student next time. You know, just so like (laughs) just just get get him 60, get a good 60, 70 years out of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, so it, it's not age of appointment. It's just how long they live um, and how long they, they, they wait before they leave. And so right. basically, I think this one is just necessary, uh, both because you get people living to their 90s. And there are some concerns, like legitimate concerns, that after a certain age, there might be declines in mental acuity. Um, and I think this is like a concern for in general. And I don't want to be like ageist about this. I think that some people who are old can be extremely uh, effective workers. Sure. Um, I, like the the point is more just like that there are there are more like health related reasons that you don't want to make it that someone let me put it like this so to retreat a little bit from talking about age uh, I want a system of government where individuals health has almost nothing to do with the functioning of government I don't want it to be that Trump like gets a cold and that affects whether he goes to a meeting that affects whether he sees like certain information ideally you'd want a system where no like facet of government is dependent on someone's health when someone dies it should be as if nothing changed whatsoever hmm. um, so you can't achieve a perfect system like that obviously um, but you can move things in favor of that and term limits do one of those things it decreases the likelihood that we're waiting for Scalia to die we're waiting for RBG to die and then suddenly there's like this enormous political moment it sort of uh, it increases the predictability of the system it, it unlinks it from health at a certain degree so people would still die within say like the 24 years um, but they wouldn't die and then suddenly there's a political crisis um, it wouldn't be as often I think I didn't get to mention the numbers. I was just going to say the average court tenure has increased from about 20 years to about 35 years. It's like a very significant increase. That's a big difference. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I read it wrong. Sorry. 18 years to um, 28 years. Still like an still enormous number. another another whole decade. Um, I'm curious because yeah. like a lot of I know that it's technically possible, um, especially if you had the president and I think the Senate in agreeance that you can just add people to the Supreme Court. Some of these other things yep. where you talk about, like, you know, maybe doing ranked choice voting or doing Supreme Court lottery or the five by five by five system. Are those actually possible to do without amending the Constitution? Because if they, if, if not, it seems like it's a non-starter. There's no fucking way. So uh, the, the two points on this are, one, probably not. Um, it's like mm. extremely constitutionally questionable. Um, however, there is this nice little... Um, there's this nice little get out of jail free card where oh because boy. you've changed the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court that is judging whether it is constitutional has also changed. So if the Senate did it, then it can to some degree become like a fiat accompli or whatever. It, mm. it is done. And so the Supreme Court is different. So the old Supreme Court can't just rule you unconstitutional. Um, it can't. I, th- it like, I thought that would happen. Like it would be kind of like all the new justices would have conflicts of interest and they'd have to set out and or there'd be enormous well, political pressure on them to do so. Although it, it kind susceptible it all hinges. So I don't know too much of the constitutional law here. Like you should speak to the constitutional lawyer perhaps about this a little bit more, but it all relates to this one word in or like phrase in the constitution, which is like serve on good behavior. And some, there's like some other part of that phrase and good behavior is something that Congress can determine. So Congress could just decide to eliminate all of the people on the Supreme court. We're willing to like, I don't know, impeach them or remove them all because they aren't doing good behavior. Um, and so theoretically Congress can kind of just do whatever it wants in practice. These institutions have been like very separate. And so I think over, Overcoming that burden is not so simple as Congress just says, hey, here's the new Supreme Court. Screw off, old guys. You've been be- behaving poorly. Go play Nintendo or something. Here's the new ones. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I do think that you need a constitutional amendment. That's kind of where the second point comes in. That's like the hardball argument. It's that you want to do court packing, not just because there are like monumentally important issues that a Democratic Senate, Congress, um, and president could, could, could achieve, but because you can use it as a lever to like try and force this constitutional amendment to be enacted, to try and force a fundamental reform of the Supreme Court. You, you basically say like either we take away your, cons- your conservative majority and all of your gains have been lost, right? Like cry, um, or you work with us towards a reform 
that actually builds a more democratic system. And then, you know, you, you've lost your temporary loss. You, you've lost your temporary gains. But in the long term, if you think you will win electorally, you will win back the Supreme Court in this like ranked choice system or this random selection system. The 505 system doesn't actually have that in its favor, but hmm. because well, it's that- fixed 555. So that's the strategy to make this kind of like you said, like this is not going to be something that we're locked in and we get the the, the enormous 500 uh, and one Supreme Court justice mix is that you, you, you it's, it's a it's a, a proposition like, hey, we're going to do this thing to immediately balance it. And then we'll also do this other more draconian uh, partisan thing unless you but, but is the like. Even if you can, I I just wonder, like, even if you get the Senate to agree to that, like, can you get three fourths of the states required to do a constitutional amendment or like some of this stuff starts sounding dubious? And that's kind of where so like the that's where the um, the messaging of like impeachment that I was talking about a little bit more, I think, comes into play so much. If the Republican leadership can just talk to Republicans and change their opinion by like 50 percent on a given issue, if the Democrats can talk to their constituents, change their opinion by like 50 percent, were it true that both parties genuinely had an interest in like changing the Constitution, I have a high degree of faith that like with an amount of partisanship and just following the leadership that we have in this country, it could be achieved. The question basically is then how do you actually achieve that? Because that's extremely different to the current situation where one party very much likes the current system and one party very much does not. And so that's the argument that you have to do this sort of constitutional hardball to, to move the current system so far from what they want that they're willing to do quite a bit of reform to bring it back in line with what they want. So Aiden, um, it sounds like there's, 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 there's a lot of risk, but it's also some, there's, there's a lot of upside. What do you think personally is like the chances of this, you know, some kind of uh, court balancing happening in the next four years on, under a, a Biden presidency. I tend to think that Biden, Biden's like an institutionalist. He was not a big fan of getting rid of the filibuster. Um, Biden is like a, a pretty centrist kind of guy. He is like a pretty centrist record. I am unlike, I think it's unlikely that Biden is going to eliminate um, the filibuster. He's going to support like overall elimination of the filibuster. Were Democrats to take the Senate, he's unlikely to support court backing. Were Democrats to take the Senate. That said, what I think probably would move him would be like extreme Republican intransigence because that's what he saw under Obama. And if there is no sure. attempt of Republicans to even attempt to consile with him, perhaps that might be enough to change his mind. And perhaps even more importantly, it would be like Democrats in the Senate. Um, um, realizing that they can't cooperate and then trying to like move Biden in the direction of supporting court packing. I would basically see him as the most likely obstacle to a court rebalancing sort of plan. Um, what just is because the, of institutionalist centrist biases on his part, not biases, what, uh, institutionalist centrist uh, history on his part. What's the chances of this happening if, if the Democrats don't con- control the Senate? Zero. Absolutely zero. zero. <laughs> so stuff like uh, the two special elections in Georgia, the runoff elections, uh, Sounds super crush. Although it is funny that like Joe Manchin uh, you know, is, is, is came out here and being like, I ain't doing none of this rebalance and court back. And I'm for yeah, it's uh, even even holding a 50 50 split with the tiebreaker vote might not save us. But if we don't. Yeah. yeah, these these two these two seats in Georgia are very, very important. Well, and they're crucial for uh, they're crucial enormously for the Supreme Court where we want to want rebalancing. We don't need to go in the Senate, but they're also almost certainly um, crucial for a vast majority of other sure. Democratic um, policies uh, for any policy that you'd want to get passed. Um, and you'd need to get it passed the Democratic House, which is not too hard. You would also need to get it passed with two Republican votes. So you're going to need to water down whatever it is you're talking about, be it climate change, be it like voter rights reform, like H.R. 1, the, um, the, the voting act that almost every Democrat in Congress has supported. These are going to 
need to be watered down to get those Republican support. And another, another big electoral reform would be stuff like adding additional states like um, Puerto Rico or Washington, D.C. It is very unlikely that Republicans, because they are so partisan, are going to agree to that. You almost certainly need, if you want to see a more Democratic Senate, um, and that's a small D Democratic, like Democratic isn't representing the will of the people. Right, right. Um, uh, if you want any of those, you need to have a like big D Democratic win in Georgia. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's not just like we need to to steal a Republican or two. It's the fact that like Mitch McConnell's uh, policy is not even to hear, you know, bills that come out of the Democratic side. So it's like it's not like I'm sure the Democrats could come up with legislation that a couple of senators would be interested in. McConnell's just not going to let it go to the floor. So like if you don't take that gavel out of his swollen purple uh, Horcrux (laughs) cursed hand. Uh, mm-hmm. His little turtle claw, right? Yeah, his little turtle claw. <laughs> He's devolving like a Star Trek: The Next Generation episode. If you don't do that, <laughs> then we're kind of we're kind of fucked. At least for the next two, if if not uh, four years of uh, the the Biden presidency. So, pretty grim shit. Yep. Well, and it's if you are worried about judicial like like biases, one of the particular problems is the Supreme Court only gets to hear cases that like go up to it where like uh, lower courts disagree. That's increasingly likely um, that they're going to get that sort of disagreement or they're going to get to agree with a conservative opinion, which is easier if the lower courts are disproportionately Republican. And if we know anything about McConnell, it's that he just created an enormous number of vacancies under the Obama administration. So it's in all likelihood he will continue to do so under a Biden administration does he have control which will tend to continue to move the court in a conservative direction as it moved under uh, president trump so i like actual policies caring about the courts like if, if you care about court legitimacy having a court that is increasingly at the like bottom middle and top of bias in favor of republicans is also going to do wonders for its legitimacy i can promise you well i appreciate the discussion i've been wanting to have like a really in-depth discussion about uh uh, court rebalancing for some time. I've been I've been teasing it for a while, uh, and I appreciate you coming on and, and helping us out with that. Uh, Aiden, uh, tell people about uh, your project, the Socialism Done Left, and where people can find you if uh, they, they they like to cut your jib and they they want to go find out how to do socialism left. <laughs> Uh, thanks again for having me on. Um, I'm Aiden. I run the channel Socialism Done Left on YouTube and on Twitch. Uh, mostly nowadays, I do streams and memes. Um, uh, the memes, unfortunately, get the vast majority of the views, which I suppose is fine <laughs> because they're really, really good. But I also quite, do um, quite a few like reasonably intelligent debates. For example, a lot of the content in this uh, conversation was um, related to a debate I had with Bastiat on Destiny's stream, which I felt was pretty good. I do a lot of other uh, interviews and debates like that. So if you like kind of live, uh, medium, long form reaction or debate or interview content, um, feel free to check me out. Socialism Done Left on Twitch or Socialism Done Left at YouTube. Thanks once again to Aiden from Socialism Done Left. You can check out his channel at youtube.com slash socialism done left or on Twitter at socialist socialism rather at socialism done left. As we discussed, this election still quite isn't over. Control of the Senate still hinges on two runoff elections in this January in Georgia. Whether we have control over the Senate is going to impact a lot of things. Failure to do so will almost certainly take a lot of progressive legislature off the table for two years, maybe longer. That means we won't have the capital, political capital, to rebalance the courts and we'll probably get weaker, more watered down versions of healthcare, environmental and justice reforms than we would otherwise. And there's a whole lot of organizations out there 
both existing and currently spinning up to try to take advantage of this enthusiasm generated by the unusual nature of these Georgia runoffs and their key importance. But you know what? I'm going to recommend that we dance with the one that brung us. And I'm going to suggest we support Stacey Abrams and her fairfight.com campaign. Stacey Abrams was robbed of the governorship of Georgia in 2018 when her opponent, then Secretary of State for Georgia, improperly and illegally purged over 700,000 voter registrations in the state just in 2017. She actually lost by just 50,000 votes. And she could have mounted a legal challenge. She had several avenues open to her that were way stronger, a hell of a lot better case than Trump did uh, with any of his failed coup ideas. But instead, she started this fair fight organization that has since worked tirelessly in the past two years to educate voters, get voters registered and get voters to show up at the polls. And the results speak for themselves. Georgia voted a Democrat for president for the first time in almost 30 years. Fairfight.com is your one-stop shop to donate money to the Senate candidates in Georgia or to volunteer your time locally or nationally. You know, these, these two races, they're tough but winnable fights with your money and your time. Absolutely, you can phone bank or text bank remotely. You never even have to leave your home, and that can have a huge impact. A few percentage points either way. It's all the difference it takes. I think after 2016 and 2020, we're all aware of how significant those small percentage points are. Even fractional percentage points can be. Georgia's just just real close. It's going to be a tight political race. Fairfight.com. If you appreciate what we do here on Three Right Turns and the Swizzbold Network, please consider giving us your support at patreon.com slash swizzbold. Support entitles you to custom Reddit flair, access to patron-only member content like our monthly live streams. And hey, we just had one last week. And you know what? That December one is right around the corner. You can get signed up now and catch up on a year's worth of content already on patreon.com slash swizzbold. Special thanks to our Fred Level patrons. They are... James Taylor, Mark Hahn, Lisa Singleton, Jenny, Arvin Rao, Dave Satterley, Brandon DeVito, Kira Grushow, Laura Luthi, Greg Rasp, Angela Morano, George P. Burdell, Brian Rasmussen, Jordan Hoyt, and Jared Haroldman. We are thankful for your support. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back in just two weeks to discuss another three right turn next week. Cecily and I will be back for more one weird trick, our advice show about love life and everything in between. Have a happy Thanksgiving. I hope everybody makes the smart and safe long-term decision on how to celebrate that. And you know what? I'm thinking of everybody making the hard choice to stay home this year. That's me and my family. I hope it's your family. Next year is almost sure to be better. See you next time.